On this special Saturday evening episode of Graciously Reformed and Triumphant, I am going to painstakingly go through, in quite great detail, Douglas Wilson's latest book, Mere Christendom. And I'm going to detail where I actually agree with Brother Wilson, and where I actually quite a bit disagree. So let's start with chapter 1. Chapter 1, which is called Wicked Secularism. Brother Wilson is right to point out that the villain of his book, and the villain of Christianity in general, is the idea of secularism, and the idea that it's possible for society to function as a coherent unit without reference to God. I have absolutely no problem with this part of his book and this part of his, let's say, thesis on his idea of a mere Christendom. He is quite right that in a Darwinian society, the highest civic value has to be survival, and since we are talking about species, it has to be survival of the group. There is therefore no theoretical ground for our secularist rulers to value individual liberty. This is very true, and this part of the book I absolutely agree. In order for genuine liberty to be extended to non-Christians, it is essential that non-Christians not be allowed to define genuine liberty, Brother Wilson says. This, too, I agree with. The blind, as he says, should not lead the blind, as someone once taught us, and it is astonishing that even some Christians have been maneuvered into thinking that blind leadership can have any hope of keeping us on the road and out of the ditch. This, again, I have no problem with. There is quite a lot good in this first chapter, in which he delves deep into the wicked of secularism and how it is an enemy of Christianity, not its friend. I truly do agree with Brother Wilson in this regard. Secularism is basically another religion, an anti-Christian religion, an anti-Christ religion, and therefore is an anti-Christian, I would go so far as to say satanic lie of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that you can somehow be neutral, when in fact morality is not neutral. Religion is not neutral. True religion is to repent and believe in Christ. He is the way, truth, and the life, not our way. I'm not a pluralist, and no true faithful Christian is. So I definitely do not agree with secularism. I would go so far as to even say secularism is high treason to God and a heresy to believe in. Chapter 1, A-OK, thumbs up. But that's not all there is in this book. In chapter 2, we get to him describing taxation. And here I do have a problem. He seems to think that taxation in some form can be voluntary, but if it's voluntary, that means you don't have to pay it. Let's take something that is sort of quasi-voluntary, say like a sales or a consumption tax. You can't really say that's voluntary, because you can't say to the person you're pay- buying something from, I don't want to pay that extra amount that you're being made to charge me in taxes that then goes to the government. If you do that, and if you get caught, you eventually could go to jail. And they come to get you to go to jail by sending men with guns. Other words, taxation, as long as it exists, is backed up by the coercion and force of the state. We need to be realistic about this. If you are a limited government Christian, you still, as long as you are saying taxation will exist, say that people will be coerced to pay the government for their services. And not only that, but taxation Proper, just taxation is in fact biblical. After all, we are told to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. 
That's not saying Caesar isn't under God and should not be enforcing God's law and having proper godly justice. But it is a defense of the fact that you render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That means you pay taxes and that taxation is biblical. Just like Romans 13 actually does say that we are to have a state, we are to have a government that has force and coercion backing it, and that you are to submit to it in non-tyrannical things, and that doesn't mean you cannot resist tyrannical governments. The same thing is true of taxation. There is just fair, proper ways of taxation that are still coercive, that are still going to be backed by force. And I think Doug Wilson does a disservice to his readers um, by making him think that all taxation is a voluntary thing because that's not the case. And that part, I just cannot get behind. Because uh, to me, it's not biblical um, to argue that way um, if you're arguing for a state. It just it doesn't work. And as someone who actually was a, did go through a streak of being an anarcho-theonomist, which is a contradiction in terms, I don't think you can argue biblically at all, in any way, shape, or form, for any form of anarchism. And if all payments to the government are voluntary, you're talking about an anarchist society, where the government isn't a government, the state isn't the state, they are essentially just a very huge private defense agency that everyone voluntarily pays for in a specific nation. That's not a state, that's not a government. That is verging on anarcho-capitalism. Now, moving on to something that I do agree with in his taxation section, is that their form of taxation we currently have is absolutely unconstitutional. Um, It's not fair, it's not just, but there is a just form and a fair form of taxation. A further section in the taxation where it actually does give a percentage uh, it's, he says he believes in a 10% taxation rate, which actually I would be fully in support of, but if he thinks that that makes us living in a libertarian daydream, I'm afraid he doesn't know libertarian the- in philosophy, um, nor politically or socially. A libertarian daydream, again, would be an anarcho-capitalist society in which there is no government. What he should be saying is, taxation rate is a minarchist's daydream. If that, as most minarchists actually are against taxation, just as much as anarchists making them very close to anarcho-capitalists on the political spectrum. And obviously I agree with him in here when it says that taxes are owed, which is what I was thinking while I was reading the first part. But again, it's contradictory. It's not consistent. I think if you're writing a book that's supposed to be about mere Christendom, it should be consistent because you're you're putting forth a what's supposed to be a consistent theory or thesis on having Christian nations, and you're sort of all over the place at times. And again, no disrespect to Brother Wilson as a brother in Christ, but this book is just something about certain sections of it. Now... Uh, he continues here in the next chapter. The next chapter is called Tactics of the Enemy. And in here he talks about various tactics of, of the state. And there's re- some really good stuff in here. For example, when he talks about one of the central tactics of our uh, secularism is to pretend that their foundational assumptions are religiously neutral. Well, Ray covered that uh, when talking about the first chapter, but he talks about it a little bit more in chapter 3. And again, this part is fine. I, um, I can't seem... Uh, there's nothing I really have problems with, for the most part, going through... The, 
uh, tactics of the enemy. I agree that the whole phobia, when it comes to homophobia or Islamophobia or whatever, suffix phobia, um, is PC, cultural Marxist speech tyranny. I I have no problem in saying that. I totally agree. Therefore, Christians should uh, have no business using such words. Yeah, it goes into a little bit more about the word Christendom and taking it back. And again, I have really no issues with the idea of mere Christendom as as an as 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 the ideal. I mean, obviously, I would love a Christian nation. Obviously, I want Canada to be Christianized and it be a Christian nation. Obviously, I would love for Canada to have more and more people be regenerate, to be saved, have those saved people be in positions where they can influence political leaders, influence the elite, influence the globalists, influence the New World Orderers, whatever you want to call them, the people in charge. I would love for them to be influenced by Christ, to be regenerated, and to make Christian nations, nations that are honoring Christ. No problem at all. I mean, when he's talking about that as being an ideal, I have no issues with that. So, in Tactics of the Enemy, I I totally get where he's coming from. Uh, In the next chapter, the next chapter is a chapter called Jesus Mobs. That's chapter four. Uh, And in that, he talks about different types of mobs that have existed. Uh, There was something that I... Oh, yes. This this is what it was. I I defined the spot. So, on page 54 and 55 of Mere Christendom, he starts talking about Viking Man and Jesus Man and how some people can't tell the difference, which I thought was was interesting, but he also talks about mobs, these mobs that existed in Jesus' days, and that Viking man, which is someone who's part of a Jesus mob, as he's describing it, is not something that Jesus himself, the Lord and Savior, the King, that he wouldn't care and doesn't care about Jesus mobs. I disagree. I don't think that the ends justify the means, so I don't support any Jesus mobs, and I don't think Christ supported Jesus' mobs. Just because Christ Jesus, when he was on the earth, before his resurrection and then ascension, doesn't mean that he didn't not like (laughs) what they were doing. It just means that he didn't mention it. And of course, I really do have a little bit of bitter taste in my mouth on page 56 and 57 when it makes it seem that not all... Well, first of all, he says not all churches are healthy. I agree not all churches are healthy. Don't join a diseased one. Well, here's the problem. The problem is the diagnosis. The problem is the diagnosis being one of if you do not follow me and my views during said vid pandemic, that you're somehow a diseased church. I disagree. I do not think that just because someone who's a brother or sister in Christ had a different opinion about what to do during the C vid. <laughs> Plandemic, that, that means that your church is diseased. People come to different conclusions based on the information they have at the time. A lot of people did not know all the information about the CVID pandemic. A lot of people didn't know how much junk and bunk was being pushed, and out of what they thought was a serious issue, they made different choices. I don't think we should be calling Christians who disagree with us, and just to be clear and to be forthwith, I used to be on the other side at one point. I was a complier. I thought that, there was a time I thought the CVID thing was a real thing, and it was, so I had a lack of information, and I chose the other side. Does that mean that I was a diseased Christian? Does that mean that my church, because my church are people in my church who agree with me were diseased Christians. We weren't, you know, we were a different level of Christian. To me, that's a very dangerous sort of message to spread. I do agree that there are unhealthy churches. I even agree that there are diseased churches. There are churches headed for apostasy. There are churches that are already at apostasy. There are churches that don't have any of the marks of true churches. There are churches that allow an apostasy and heresy and are allowing same-sex mirage and all kinds of stuff. Those are the sorts of diseases 
you should be really, really worried about. That doesn't mean we can't talk about our differences of opinion. I am a resistor now. I am all for keeping all the churches open no matter what the mandates are. I am all for not wearing masks. I am all for say no to the jab and not taking it. But I don't agree that the ends defy the means. And by saying join a church that's not diseased, to me, I don't think that's a very appropriate way of, of settling accounts with people who might have different views than you. Another thing that goes on in Jesus Mobs that I don't agree with is him defending things like Proud Boys and other, other groups. Uh, I don't think we should be su- supporting as a Christian Proud Boys or being silent. I think we should speak up when the, you have these mobs. Think, thinking they can be doing justice on their own and literally asking for a revolt, um, a rebellion against states in general. And I really fear, fear and feel that some of the Jesus mob chapters, and I don't know if this is intention, but the way it reads is that he's not going to call out Jesus mobs because they're on his side of the political fence, and I just can't agree with that. Now, going on to chapter 5, which is where he starts tying a little bit more by mere Christendom, he actually defines what he means by mere Christendom, and I'm going to read it quote for quote from page 69, chapter 5, what is mere Christendom. So, what do I mean by mere Christendom exactly? I mean a network of nations bound together by a formal, public, civic acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the foundational truth of the Apostles' Creed. I mean a public and formal recognition of the authority of Jesus Christ that repudiates the principles of secularism and that avoids both hard sectarianism and easy latitudinarianism. Or, sorry, latitudinarianism. <laughs> both. Easier than done, but there it is. That is what we have to do. And we have to do it because secularism has run its course and does not have the wherewithal to resist the demands of radical Islam or radical anything else for that matter. Anyway, so he goes on to talk about how it's possible to argue for this without supporting an established church. Uh, he then goes on to say that in order for this to happen at all, the church must be established in the sense that the magistrate has the responsibility to recognize her, to convene synods, and councils to seek her counsel and listen to her. The magistrate himself has the responsibility as a public figure in the discharge of his office to believe in Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. I absolutely agree. Our governments should be run by Christians who profess a true saving faith, and who are then going to use the government to defend God's justice and laws. He also goes on to say that we must always hold on to the truth presented by not whether but which. This is something I've said myself, that it's not whether but which. It is not whether we will be governed by Christ, but whether rich Christ will we be governed by. The Lordship of Christ is not an option that we might select from a row of numerous options. It is Christ or chaos. It is Christ or antichrist. This part I agree with wholeheartedly. We either have governments that are representing God, or we are simply sojourners, and this is something that he doesn't mention in here, which I... I, I something, again, where I, <clears throat> where I think he should talk about this. We, are, we either have a Christ-honoring government, or we as Christians are sojourners, pilgrims, and our government is Babylon. Those are the two options. He also goes on to say that a word God that encompasses both the deity of Mormonism, who used to be a man just like us, and the triune creator of heaven and earth, worshipped by Orthodox Christians, is for all intents and purposes a worthless word. It is a thin word, not a thick one. I would agree with this. He then goes on to talk about how John Adams, even though he said uh, America was made for religious people, was actually a radical Unitarian. He was no Christian at all, which I agree with. 
He then says that mere Christendom needs to be thin when it comes to the differences between Lutherans and Methodists, Presbyterians and Baptists and so on, but it means to manage to do this without thinning out the contents of the Apostles' Creed. It needs to be thick there. Again, I agree with this. Then call, goes on to talk about, um, if you like, you can call it mere fundamentalism. A free civilization is necessarily larger than any of the Christian denominations within it, but at the same time, a free civilization will have to be Christian. I agree with this as well, um, that if you're talking about a Christian nation, and that is the ideal, then that civilization has to be a Christian civilization, but that doesn't mean it has to be supporting or forcing you into any particular Christian denomination. So I agree with him when he proposes no single established church, no tax-supported denominations. And I do agree with him that the formal adoption of the Apostles' Creed, and I agree without any hermeneutical funny business, should be proposed as in, that we as a nation formally confess together that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. That part I agree with. And I also agree with him that if you protest that that would kill the great secular experiment that is America, I too agree and would reply that the great secular experiment that is America appears to have already gone out behind the barn and shot itself already. It's when he gets into his, again, his libertarian aspects. See, this is the thing. Mere Christendom, the book, is really more like a fleshed-out version of a bunch of blogs that Douglas Wilson has done on a theory that he has come up with, and it is his theory, called uh, theocratic libertarianism, or, or being a theocratic libertarian. The problem is, libertarianism is, is comes with a base philosophy. It is a very base philosophy, and it is the philosophy of self-ownership and self-sovereignty, which is completely opposite. It's a completely autonomous view. It's completely opposite theocracy, or a Christian nation, or Christian nationalism, whatever title you want to use, or mere Christendom in this case. It is completely against that. If you're talking about a Christian nation where God's laws are enforced, and that's what theocracy means, God's laws are enforced by the force of the state, you can't be, <laughs> you can't combine that with self-sovereignty, you can't combine that with the anarchistic libertarian, and, and libertarianism consistently applied is anarchism, it's anarcho-capitalism, you can't take that and make it biblical. What I fear is he's giving uh, the wrong impression in this book. I don't think he should be associating, and, and I, I thought the same thing on his blogs when he talks about this, he should not be calling himself a theocratic libertarian because that's inconsistent. Libertarianism, by, de by its definition, is a live and let live, do whatever you want as long as it's peaceful philosophy. Theocracy, which is the goal of theonomy, and by the way, I, I do consider myself a Bonson, uh, a Bonson style, classical, uh, bottom up style theonomist, in the sense that I do believe that we, when enough people are regenerated in God's sovereignty, He can take the nations. And when that happens, if that happens in his plans, in by God's design, yes, we will put forth a biblical law policy, we will have all the proper moral laws enforced, and we will have a Christian civilization. And I do believe that will happen before the end, because I am a post-millennialist. But we won't do it in our own power. The Holy Spirit working in us will. It will be part of God's sovereignty and design, and will happen at his point in time. I don't believe in trying to push forward what some in the uh, Puritans would call the golden era of postmillennialism. I wouldn't use that term. I think it gives the wrong impression that everyone will be saved and there'd be no evil, which I don't believe. I believe the majority of civilizations will have Christian governments. I believe we will have a mere Christendom of Christian nations bounded together before the end of everything, before Christ comes back. But I don't believe in anarchism, uh, anarcho-capitalism, anarcho-socialism of any kind, us revolting, us rebelling, us being in the streets, peaceful protesting, that's fine. But libertarians would go a lot further than anything he says in this book, which to me makes him not a libertarian. He is a general equity theonomist. That's what he is. And he should be honest in his book. 
he only mentioned the term general equity theonomy, I think, maybe two or three times, and it was in very obscure places that I could find. It wasn't mentioned. If what he's for is general equity theonomy, and he is a general equity theonomist, he says it himself, he should be forthright in his book and say, we don't want a theocratic libertarian agenda, which is inconsistent in so many ways. Instead, what we want is a general equity theonomic state. And then he should go on to explain what general equity theonomy is, how it's taking the general equity of the moral law and making biblical laws based on the general equity of the moral laws found in both in the Old Testament as well as within the Ten Commandments. The moral laws, the general equity of the moral laws, and the precepts and um, reasons behind those moral laws, and then going into the modern day and how we could take the what's just, which would from the moral law, which is everything, by the way, but take the moral law, the general equity of that law, and apply it to our modern day. For example, and he gives this example all the time about the the railing of the parapet, the railing over the roofs. Per, why does right? So, the fact that that is an extension of an old moral law, a judicial law, from the time of Moses, which is still relevant, it's a form of moral law, it's saying, thou shalt not murder, it's stopping someone from falling down and killing themselves, possibly, and that that still applies until the end of time is part of God's moral law. How it functions in a specific society changes based on the context. But he should be open about that, and he shouldn't be talking about you know, I'm a theocratic libertarian. And he can call himself whatever he wants. I don't think it's an appropriate label. Now, in this section, he does go on to talk about the libertarian aspects of this mere Christendom. And it ins- insists that most of our practical problems can be addressed through repealing laws and abolishing agencies. When most people hear about a theocratic anything, they assume they'll soon be confronted with Alatoya. Taya manned death panels, but all societies are theocratic. This I agree with. All societies are theocratic, with the only thing distinguishing them being the nature and attributes of the reigning theos. Since our current theos happens to be a bloodthirsty maniac, and because I'm not a devotee of that particular religion, I would urge my fellow citizens to turn away from him and turn to our Heavenly Father. Amen. I agree with that. But that's also, and I don't think he intends to do this, confusing, because I know for a fact that Douglas Wilson wants to recriminalize pot. Recriminalizing pot <clears throat> and making sure all drugs, illicit drugs, are illegal is not repealing laws. And uh, it is abolishing agencies. You can do that and abolish tons of agencies that don't have to do with that particular topic. But that's not repealing laws. You're not going to repeal laws by recriminalize pot. You are, in fact, adding a law. And by the way, I'm not saying that that's wrong to do. I'm not saying I don't agree with recriminalizing recreational pot use because it has a lot of detrimental, detrimental effects. But he should be open and honest in this book and say, my theocratic libertarianism is not going to necessarily be repealing laws. Sure, in a biblical law order, he say he says there'd be no EPA, IRS, Department of Education, um, that only legitimate functions of government would be defense, state, etc., and that they would be significantly downsized and redirected. And that's fine. It might do that, but that doesn't make you a libertarian. If you then take that smaller state, right, and you're for, in that smaller state... Taking something that being legal gives people a live-and-let-live lifestyle and putting the forced government behind it by criminalizing something that's currently legal, you're not repealing laws, you're adding laws. Yes, you're repealing a bunch of laws when it comes to all these agencies, but be truthful, and it's never mentioned in this book, but I know for sure he's for recriminalizing pie. He wa- he's for recriminalizing homosexuality. He's for recriminalizing drag shows. He's for recriminalizing a number of things that most people will look at him and say, you're an ex- 
extreme conservative. You're not a libertarian. So he should be open about these things. The fact that he says the positive laws he would like to see enacted would be in areas of constitutional process and reform. That might be. But again, a Christian nation. He's a theocrat. He, he says he's a theocratic. He's for a theocracy. Theocracy means rule by God. That means rule by God's law word. God's law word doesn't allow for things that go against his law word. What does that mean? It means, let's just take, let's forget like all the different judicial laws that exist that are still, I would argue, should still be actually punished, but our current government isn't, and never will be until it becomes Christ-sanctified and regenerate and filled with saved believers. But, let's say we had that Right? Just the Ten Commandments alone. You shall have no God before me. Blasphemy laws. They would exist. You could not publicly blaspheme God in a, a Christian nation, in a theocratic nation. You can worship behind closed doors all you want. You know, we're, you're not going to barge in and try to read people's thoughts and everything, but they can't publicly blaspheme, you know? You're not going to be able to publicly blaspheme on the air and broadcasts. They wouldn't be able to publicly blaspheme in content. So that that would be added rules when it comes to content on television and places like that. You wouldn't be able to blaspheme specifically in the public square. Let's say you left out. Okay, let's say you left out blasphemy laws in terms of people saying things on broadcast and stuff. Okay, let's say that didn't happen. But blasphemy laws would still exist in the public square. That means you couldn't have a mosque. You couldn't have a Buddhist shrine <laughs> in public. You couldn't have a, you know, an occultic satanic altar. You couldn't have witch witches in the public square doing witchcraft and stuff. You couldn't do that. Only the one true God could be acknowledged in the public square. So that's, again, it's not repealing laws. You're going to be adding a significant laws. Let's, how about the laws against sexual content? Porn made illegal, porn banned, porn banished, porn demolished, the entire sex industry abolished, no one allowed to in, engage in prostitution, that would be form of adultery, so you can't have legalized prostitution or you're not actually enforcing the adultery laws. Uh, because adultery, again, according to the Bible, is any sex aside marriage. So you'd have laws against fornication. If people do fornicate, they would have to get married to the person they're fornicating with. Or if they're not willing to do that, the, the, there's other rules that are in the Bible that are mentioned. So there's lots of things that if you seriously want a Christian nation and you seriously are theocratic, honor your father and mother. That means there's going to be laws there about honoring your parents. You see what I'm getting at? The term theocratic libertarian, which is what this book is, the Theocratic Libertarian Manifesto, makes no sense because libertarianism is very much based on a pagan, um, live and let live sort of viewpoint. And if you, by mere Christendom, mean Christian nations, the only consistent way of doing that is to have biblical law. And you want biblical law. You're a general equity theonomist. That means you want the general equity of the Ten Commandments and any judicial laws that come from them to be enforced in society, through the government. And guess what? So do I. <laughs> but admit what you want. I make no bones about wanting Christian nation. I make no bones about there, I believing there will be a Christian nation. But at the same time, I don't take the tactic of, you know, let's, let's run with, no, no, no. Anyone who reads any of my blogs, even though I fully, fully need to let them know, and I, and I make sure they realize this, that I'm for bottom up change. I don't believe in, again, rebelling, revolting, and forcing the nation to be Christian, or, right? I don't believe in that. But even so, once we get a government, and if that go that government is Christian, it enforces the commandments. And even enforcing the commandments alone, let's forget about everything else in the Mosaic Judicial Law, just those alone, you know how many laws we're going to need to add or at least modify that we currently exist, that they include certain things, 
quite a lot. A Christian nation would be an incredibly socially conservative nation. Because that's what Christianity teaches. It would be a socially biblical nation. An economically biblical nation. So where I do agree is that the ideal government is the limited government. Absolutely. There are things that the government should do. There are things that the government shouldn't do. Do I believe in true freed market? capitalism? Absolutely. Although I think the term capitalism has been so taken by taken and, and, and not just drowned in horrific things that happen <clears throat> by extreme left who sometimes blame capitalism for things that capitalism itself isn't doing, but more of a just what could be called a disaster uh, capitalism, which isn't capitalism at all. So I believe in freed markets, free markets, I believe in limited government, but free markets would be delineated again by God's law and the biblical law word. There are certain things you wouldn't be trading in a Christian nation. There are certain things in a Christian community you would not be allowed to trade because it would be against the biblical law. I really do think the idea of clinging to the term libertarian isn't a good idea. Uh, so chapter 6, which is uh, talks about a brief scattershot primer on Christian nationalism, he talks about Christian nationalism and how Christian nationalism has a, has a term, despite what some people might uh, mean by the term, is a good term because, um, for example, he says, I am a Christian and I am not a globalist. I am a Christian and I am not a tribalist. I am a Christian and I live somewhere. What shall we call that? And he says that, in his opinion, understood rightly, Christian nationalism relates to mere Christendom the same way that a brick relates to a brick wall. And I think he does define Christian nationalism here in a way that a lot of Christian nationalists don't define it. And, again, this is the same problem with his using the term theocratic libertarian. Because... If he's using a term and it's different from the way that's actually defined, then he's slumping himself in with people who use that phrase, whether they mean it the way that he does or not, which is just confusing. A Christian nation should never be mistaken, he says, as being the same thing as a chosen nation. There is no exceptionalism in it. In the Old Testament era, Israel is God's chosen nation, and the other nations were not. But in the era of the New Covenant, the commandment that Christ left for us meant that we are to disciple all the nations. And I would agree with that, because I am also a post-millennial. And I think even most Amels would agree with that. The first Christian nation, which was probably Armenia, was not an only child. She was simply the eldest, knowing that there were going to be lots of other kids. So, essentially, he's talking about how a Christian nation or a Christian nationalism can simply mean that you're for a Christian nation and nothing else. And it doesn't mean you're for any exceptionalism in your nation. Problem is, that's not the way Christian nationalism is used by the majority of people, again, who call themselves Christian nationalists. The majority of people who call themselves Christian nationalists, in fact, are just nationalists who are Christians. <laughs> Essentially, they are people who want, yes, a Christian nation, but they do see things like American exceptionalism as something to be uh, seen as good, and a lot of them, although not all of them, are mega people. They are Trumpites. So, I agree with him actually later when he says, mere Christendom is not Christian nationalism, but I disagree when he says mere Christendom is the sum total of lots of smaller Christian nationalisms, based on the fact that there is so much loaded in that term, and I do not think that there's anything to be had by actually using it when you're not defining it correctly according to the people who actually came up with the term. I do agree that mere Christendom would be a good thing. Uh, he goes on to talk in chapter 7, which is the goodness of mere Christendom, about how Christians who try to evade the force of not whether but which argument will sometimes resort to saying it is the best system that we have at the moment. And he goes further to talk about the necessity of morality being ground in the will of God. I totally agree with that. Oh yeah, he also goes on to say that he believes that Jesus is actually a king, not a president, and the Great Commission requires us to proclaim that the coronation has already happened, 
Jesus is not running for anything, and we do not make him anything. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and the Presidents of Presidents, or Prime Ministers of Prime Ministers, in our case, and in Britain's case. And there's nothing whatever we can do about it. That part I agree. Oh yes, he does go on to say that he believes that Christian republics and commonwealths are formed by preaching, baptizing, and discipleship, not by campaigning, legislating, pundit blogging, and so on. This gospel work will have political results, but it's not politically established. The magistrate is a necessary part of the process, but only as a servant to the gospel. The magistrate must wear Christ's livery and not the other way around. And then he goes on to explain why he believes Jesus wants nations to be explicitly Christian. He does say here that a reform understanding of the gospel, of worship, of education, of politics, and so on, is, is, is incoherent apart from a commitment to Christendom. That's on 96. Again, here he seems to be saying that those who are reformed, who are not for his mere Christendom project, who are not post-millennials, who are not theonomic, are not in fact reformed. They are not truly reformed. That the only truly coherent reformed people are those who are theonomic post-millennials, and I am one, but I would never say, and I do believe it, it, it is coherent with the, all the prophecies of of so many great things that are supposed to happen in the future, and I believe they take place before the second coming. But I don't think if you have a disagreement about this, and by the way, my 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 actual church I'm in is majority a millennial. Um, I really don't know any other postmills except for myself. I would never say that all the rest of my church is not really reformed, even though we're a reformed church and we all follow all the reformed uh, three forms of unity, that we are not all reformed brothers and sisters because they don't agree on the same view of the gospel of the kingdom as I have and other postmills have, uh, because that somehow makes them non-Christian and so they're not reformed or somehow not reformed so they're not reformed <laughs> I guess that's contra- sort of repeating myself but the point is once again here we have an issue I have with Wilson's book uh, he is saying that Christendom is an essential part of a reformed theology in its historical setting and I say that there are genuine faithful Christians there are genuine faithful reformed Christians who would not agree with the mere Christian project I do in, in spirit and in fact materially to a certain extent but again People who do not agree with that is do not. There is plenty of coherent, rational, biblical, faithful Reformed Christians who look at mere Christendom and don't agree with it because they don't think it's biblical. I disagree. I think it is biblical and that they're wrong. (laughs) But I'm not going to say that because I disagree with someone. But that somehow means that that their Reformed theology is not truly Reformed theology. And then, of course, he goes on to then say that if you're not post-millennial, again, you're not consistent and you're not fully Reformed. I I just answered that from the other side. But then he brings in pedo-communion. And here's somewhere where I disagree. Um, I disagree with his entire crack, C-R-E-C, that he's in on this. I don't agree with pedo-communion. I think you need to be a, a professing member of a church before you can take communion. I do not believe that just because you're baptized as an infant, you have the wherewithal to understand and thus properly partake in communion. And the fact that this book literally says that pedo-communion is the way that we nurture the next generation in optimistic faith, so you can't actually nurture the next generation in an optimistic faith if you're Amhill, or if you're um, not for pedo-communion, because he puts pedo-communion and post-millennialism right next to each other. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you're going down the wrong, wrong there. And where I really disagree with him, page 103, in which he says there is no way to preach the blood of Christ without advancing a sacrificial glory of the next Christendom. So anyone who disagrees with his form of 
of new Christendom, his his idea that we need a new Christendom, are not truly living to sacrificial glory and really living out or spreading the gospel. So you're saying that all those truly saved Reformed people in my church who are Ramil, who are not theonomic, in fact, quite a few of them are anti-theonomic, who probably do not agree at all with this book, who wouldn't even touch this book because, Brother Wilson, you wrote it, that just because they have a sharp disagreement, including eschatologically, but also politically, that they're not really preaching the gospel or living the gospel. I mean, to me, that is sectarian, and it's really wrong. It's really putting other Christians under the bus, and I don't agree with that at all. And, of course, he goes after the Radical Two Kingdoms, which I'm not a huge proponent of either. And I think that's my main takeaway that I, that I, my main sort of stumbling block with this book is all the times you find him saying things that make it seem like people who disagree with him are somehow not faithful. This is something that some people say and I don't agree with, with, with it. If just because you disagree, just because you disagree with him, just because you disagree with the, his post-millennialism, just because you disagree with his triumphalism, and I am graciously reformed and triumphant, folks. But where's the gracious in this book? Where's the gracious? Where's the humbling yourself before the Lord? Where's treating your brothers and sisters? And by the way, I do consider Doug Wilson a brother in the kingdom of Christ. He's on the side of Christ and his angels, even if his I don't agree with all of his teaching on everything, and even if other people who dislike his teaching even more than me in my church are actually right about him, I still think that he is on the side of Christ and his angels. Why does Brother Wilson think that he has the only, only, only possible faithful stance? It it really bugs me. And I'm someone on the resist side. I'm someone on the let's have a Christian nation side. I'm someone on the uh, theonomic side. And I agree with every single theonomist or every single theonomy theory out there, but... Theonomic is in God's world, God's laws, God's rules. Theonomic is in what the word actually means. Theonomy, or theonomy, God's law. I'm one of those people. But this book, I don't think represents theonomy well. I don't think it represents Christian Christian nationalism well. I don't think it represents libertarianism at all well. I don't think it represents his theocratic libertarian manifesto well because it is so contradictory, so convoluted in spots. And when I first read this book, I thought it was amazing, I thought it was wonderful, and then I went back and I noticed all this stuff that I didn't see the first time. And again, it's... I'm not bashing the book as a whole. There are lots of great stuff in this book, and if you do buy his book, Miracle there's lots of great stuff in here that I actually agree with. But it's like he takes certain things to such an extreme at times, an extreme while being in himself, in, in my mind, contradictory and incoherent, instead of coherent, when he accuses other people who disagree with him as being the only coherent ones. I don't like the heart posture, let's put it that way, that you get from some of this book. And and you don't always get this from Brother Wilson. There are times, I've looked at video clips of his and some speeches of his, and stuff like that, and interviews with him and stuff, and you don't always get that sort of arrogant heart, heart, heart posture, but in this book, an arrogance a lack of humility just seeks and oozes out of the book. And again, as someone who loves Brother Wilson, and has, I have seen some speeches he's made against, for example, the, the radical two-kingdom view that essentially let's just keep secularism as it is, let's, you know, that basically libertarian classical liberalism is the way to go. He's great at demolishing that, and I believe that do-what-you-will sort of classical liberalism is something that Christians shouldn't support. He's good at at demolishing that in speeches and various blog posts, but I have so many, so many colored stickers 
in this book, having gone through it a third and a fourth and a fifth and however many times needed to in order to get all this stuff here ready for my podcast about it, again, I'm not saying don't read it. I'm not (laughs) telling you what to do. And I'm not even saying that if you agree with everything that I disagree with, you're not a brother. Quite the opposite. I humbly love you. I humbly hope God blesses you, even though we disagree. You might agree 110% with this book, even the parts I disagree with. You might even think there can be theocratic libertarianism, which I don't think there can be. But it's the hard posture. The hard posture. I know people in crack churches, and they don't have... And again, even Douglas himself, I don't see at all this sort of hard posture coming from them. But this book makes it seem like Doug Wilson is super arrogant, he knows everything, and that if you don't agree with him, you're unfaithful. And I I can't endorse that part of the book. It's just something I can't endorse. Can I endorse, like, you know, even 70 or 80 percent of this book? Maybe 70, 75 percent, something like that? Sure, I can. But I can't endorse 100 percent of it. Because it contains incoherent arrogance, lack of humility, lack of being humble, and thinking you know it all. And I just don't agree with that heart posture. The gospel essentials, yes, we all have to agree on fundamentals as part of being Christians. Yes, there are certain things that we all have to agree on, or it's a sign we have not been saved, we have not been born again, we have not been adopted as children of God. Absolutely. Fundamentals. Gospel Essentials, which I hope to talk about in the near future, actually, with my brother who's in a crack church, Nathan, my ex-pastor. There are fundamentals. There are essentials. And then there is your eschatology, your view of communion, and your view of politics. And while I do think that there is more coherent and biblical-based versions of political theory, and less, that doesn't mean Doug Wilson's mere Christmas is dead. And I just want, before I tur- sign off, because I'm done talking about this book for this afternoon or this evening now, I just want to say, again, you do not have to agree with someone to be on every every single little secondary and third and fourth tertiary issue to be a faithful brother and sister in the Reformed Church or in just in a truth church in general, regardless of the denomination. We are not Christians based on our eschatology. We are not Christians or non-Christians based on whether we're pep pedo-baptists or credo-baptists, although I think pedo-baptism or infant baptism is definitely the biblical way, that's not, that's important, that's crucially important, but it's not a central, fundamental gospel issue. And I think the problem I have with this book, as much as so much of it I loved and agreed with, believe it or not, I, I still, again, agree with 775, even maybe 80% of this book. It's just there's too much trying to read the hearts and minds of Christians that do not agree with him, and I just cannot endorse that sort of um, sort of view. I just can't.